Think of life like a grand pyramid scheme, where each generation relies on the next. But what happens when the growth of this pyramid stalls? Welcome to today's world. There simply aren't enough young people or resources to care for older people properly. We've got some band-aid solutions. You can increase immigration, or maybe ban contraception, joking, but eventually you'll get stuck again. You know, my, my grandfather had Parkinson. He was living with my grandmother. Um, she, she passed away uh, quite suddenly. Home care or, or staying at home was not an option because there wasn't any service available at all. And so we placed him in a care home and he was, he was particularly uh, uh, depressed and, and sad there, uh, despite our efforts and then um, sadly after six months he, um, he, he he died. For us and for me the whole experience was very special. Um, first because I think that he could have been much happier if he had stayed at home, one. Second because I think we could have done a better job to look at his needs and, and care for him better. And third because me, I was in my 20s I resented going to the care home and seeing him because it was this phase of life and of society that's kind of taboo, right? It's, it's the, the one where you see people in their old age in a wheelchair and you're, you, you just don't want to end up like that. And I think we have to be very frank about that. Um, as a society, we've, we've obliterated and we've tabooed a little bit the, the later stage of life. And, uh, and it's something that as a society, we don't see much about unless we, we, we experience it directly with our, with, with our older relatives. If you can make care at home more efficient and hence cheaper, that's interesting. Or what if you can even use predictive AI to prevent older adults from becoming sick and ending up in hospital? That's basically what Birdie Care do, a Series B age tech company who have raised $52 million from the likes of Safina, Omar's Ventures and Index Ventures and captured 10% of the UK market whilst currently expanding into Europe. I started off by criticising Birdie, asking if you can really tackle such a fundamental problem by building software. Don't you need to actually like, you know, deliver care? So Max, I mean this with the uh, greatest of respect, but to me, it seems that in the age tech space to win, you need to have some kind of physical presence. You can't be a pure software play. And we've seen examples of, say, Honor's acquisition of Home Instead. In the UK scene, we see Sierra Care acquiring a lot of physical presences as well. Do they know something that you don't? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a great question. It's a question that I get asked and I'm asked about very often, including uh, by by advisors and and friends. I mean, you got two examples. Uh, for me, that's not that, that's not enough <laughs> as as a data point to define a trajectory that's working or not working. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of respect for these two. I think there's other ways as well. Um, and so I, I'm I stay firmly convinced about the model that we have. In my view, much uh, more scalable fashion. There's been other examples which have failed in Germany and in, in a couple of other countries where they tried this kind of uh, physical presence scaling. Um, there's, there's two models and two archetypes there, and I, I really don't know which one is better than the other one. Theirs seems to work. Ours is working very well. And so I really hope that the, the, the two of them can can be successful. Um, the archetype one is you need to roll up, right? It's, it's more private equity play. It's it's quite capital intensive. You buy different uh, providers. And, and the thesis there is 
you know, will realize economies of scale and synergies um, by, by aggregating them, including through the injection of technology to really make them more efficient and therefore the margins will improve and and it's it's a, it's a very nice play. It's it requires a lot of capital and therefore it's not so much scalable unless you have a lot of money that you need to either raise or borrow. Archetype 2 is the one that we follow where we say we are a, a technology company. We are empowering existing care providers and we believe that's more scalable because we spend every single pound that we got on building technology. We're not distracted by the operations and we really want to empower people delivering care to do a better job, particularly in a world where um, care providers are quite decentralized. Um, community care is very local. And so, and there's an army of people doing that already. And so we have a strong conviction that we don't want to repeat what they do and we have no uh, arrogance uh, whatsoever to to do it better we want to empower them not saying that you know honor CRI is arrogant whatsoever i think the model is is also very compelling um, but we believe ours is quite is quite scalable as well because we we invest only in technology then you know we can actually scale fast and and so we have 10 percent of the market share in the uk we we're expanding in other countries um probably at capital efficiency that's that's higher than them I think that there's no winner or loser. I think it's also a, a philosophy. We, we, we see ourselves more as a Shopify and, and these guys more as an Amazon-esque model where you know it's only a, a winner takes all where you have volume and mass that you can actually uh, uh, succeed and also bring these benefits to the patient. Whereas we more see ourselves as an empowering uh, tool to bring these benefits to the patient and, 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 and be successful. Um, so I don't think you know, they are winning or we're losing. I think both models are working, but they're very different. Just to steal, man, the acquisition play. So there's two plays. There's like the software play that you're going for, the Shopify approach. And then there's the PE, private equity approach of acquiring the physical presences. Is basically the assumption of companies that do that PE approach, is it that they can acquire a lot of physical presences and run them more efficiently than they're currently being run? Is, is that essentially where the benefit comes? And then there's some further benefit, I presume, of vertically integrating and having both the software and, in quotes, the hardware as well? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think is to say, well, we, we, we can get to much higher efficiency by acquiring these uh, different providers, which are often, because of their size, not equipped as much as they'd like with the right tools and the right systems and the right guidance to actually be more efficient operationally, uh, but also to improve the, 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 the quality of the care delivered. And so the thesis, you're right, is that, is like by size, we can actually invest in, in more efficiency gains, particularly through technology. Now, you're right. The other question is then with the license of the technology to third parties, right? Um, and that's why I'm saying it takes quite a lot of money to just, you know, build a technology. So you need a lot of money if you want to do the physical presence acquisition and the tech. Um, and, and that's why we said we will do the tech. Um, so I, I, I think if you want to do both, it, you, you'd better have a lot of money. I wanted to ask a little bit about the Birdie product and how it's developed over time. I'd love to hear maybe your initial MVP or the initial product, and then maybe how it's changed throughout its development. And in particular, I'd love to hear if there were any red herrings or any areas you went down that didn't end up panning out and how you adjusted basically. Since the beginning, we wanted to be, as I said, a technology uh, partner. And we started B2C. So we started with a consumer proposition for families. 
And uh, I remember vividly, I was actually in King's Cross Station here in London, handing out leaflets to family members in the station to try to convince them to sign up for free on the, the Birdie Care Companion app. And uh, we had miserable results. Um, it, was, it, was really, it was really hard. And we learned so much about that. Um, every situation is different, number one, because it's a quite intimate and sensitive topic. Uh, for families, so there's no way they're going to exchange with someone in the station about you know the, the the mom's you know health condition and how hard it is, and because we were very unclear about the value proposition we were offering, which was we'll support you. And what does that mean? And I think the the great learning there is that you you got to be very specific uh, and and understand inside out uh, the experience and the, the pain point experienced by the the customers that you like to to sell to. So we started B2C was a failure. And then we realized that actually the people who were the closest to the patients and to the families were these care providers. And we also realized, as I said, that they will become the future healthcare workforce. And so we, we pivoted to uh, these uh, folks and said, well, how could we help them become better and, and, and really help them make a, do a better job? And that's where we started with a B2B SaaS proposition. And we started with a piece that for us is key, which is the care management side of things. Um, we realized that these providers were using pen and paper um, and the care workers or the healthcare assistants going to the house of the patients were using pen and paper to check in, to check out, but also to report on the medication they were giving to the uh, patients on the, the tasks they did, on the clinical observations they were, uh, they, they, they were having. And so all of that paperwork was brought back to the office, typed into a Word document, printed, and there were two people auditing the archives uh, of, of these printouts. Um, so it was not only utterly inefficient, but also really compromising the, the quality of the care delivered. And so we started with that module saying, well, let's build an app for the care workers and a web app for these agencies employing these care workers to manage the care better. So that means assess better and in a much deeper way. So we're using um, a few different clinical assessments, uh, assessment frameworks, which are much deeper in terms of the content and the depth of them and, and the comprehensive depth of them. And then we plan, we help them plan the care better. And then these care workers during the visits were actually recording the visits on the Birdie app so that whenever, whenever there was a concern uh, or the wrong medications given um, and so on and so on, that was immediately flagged by these agencies, by the employers, and it was treated on time. And that was a huge win. Because this industry is regulated and these agencies are inspected by the regulator, but also because these guys realized that suddenly they were winning, I mean, saving a lot of time. And on top of that, they could see stuff much earlier. And that opened up a world of opportunities in terms of more prevention um, care. And I can talk about that, whether the medication are um, compatible or not. There's a range of things you can do with the fact that you've digitized data that previously was only available on paper. From there, and because these providers was at, were asking for more, we moved towards more of a full operating system model. So really, we built modules after modules to really help these guys have a full experience with Birdie from you know, rostering and scheduling to part of the invoicing and part of the payroll, the analytics, um, and so on and so on. And it's, uh, it's really covering all of the operations and digitizing as much as possible with one single aim, which is save time so that the 
do what they do best, which is care, and all the rest, we should take care of it. With all the data points that you have, what are some of the interesting things you can do? In, in my mind, it would mainly be predictive stuff about trying to predict deteriorations in hospital admissions before they happen because they're the expensive part of care. Is that sort of the interesting bit with the data? Are there other things or is that like the big opportunity? That That's the opportunity. That's the opportunity. I think also... Um, so there's, there's, there's two things you're right. Like there's an immediate opportunity, which is avoid hospital admission. And that basically is broken down into the classic use cases of hospital admission, you know, falls. So identifying risks of falls and, and acting upon a much earlier. Um, it could be, um, you know, there's a t- different types of infections, but one type is urinary tract infection, which is a classic infection happening with with old adults. Can you detect it much earlier? You can actually treat it quite fast with antibiotics, but if you let it deteriorate, it actually can significantly uh, worsen, and and you could stay easily for three, four weeks at the hospital. There's a couple of things like that. I mean, these use cases we know we're trying to address, and we're working with the data to try to address them. But then there's a wider set for us, which is the, the, the wider set of health determinants, which is not about all about hospital admission, but also how could we ensure that a patient is happier and, and, and feels healthier? So it's not about actual health measured by hospital admission, but can we go even earlier in that thinking and ask ourselves, how would a patient feel better? So health determinants could be like risks of depression. Do we see you know, mood signs? And we, are, you know, we, we try that, and this is not something that we're running at scale. But we would love at some point to try to identify mental health um, signals because that is an, an incredibly strong signal of, of health eventually. Uh, and the physical health is a lagging indicator of, of the mental health, as we know. And so there's a couple of things like that where we'd like also to use the data to try to identify the things upstream to avoid um, the problems downstream. Uh, but it's essentially that. I think you're right. It's essentially prevention. Can I pitch an idea to you that's in the D to C age tech scene and then you critique it so maybe say what you like about it first because i suspect it's going to be a short list and then maybe why it wouldn't work based on your sort of knowledge and experience is that all right sure so the caveat is that this isn't my idea this is my friend chris lovejoy's idea but i thought it was an amazing idea the problem is essentially that a lot of people have come from less economically developed countries and come to places like the uk the us more prosperous places they might have family back home in these places and they are not confident that they are being looked after well. And that might be because the health systems aren't very good. It might be because of lack of communication. But here you are, okay, you're 2,000 miles away and you don't know, are they even being appropriately managed medically? Is anyone looking after them? And you have an incredible degree of like guilt around that and trying to figure out how to do things. And the problem is, even if you want to do things, you're 2,000 miles away, you can't really care for them properly. There's like an interesting opportunity, I think, there in terms of taking essentially a service that charges in the UK, the US, in more prosperous countries. So there's a bit of a currency arbitrage. And then basically taking money from people here and through a very similar platform to Birdie, but more on the B2C side, and making sure that your relatives are being cared for back home. So that the way that would look is like a dashboard where you could see this is my elderly relative, this is my parent, and uh, this was their last checkup, these are their health concerns, someone is going to organize all of this, someone is monitoring all of this, here are their investigation results, etc. 
And this would be based on a subscription model, say monthly. As well as that, you might be linked to kind of good providers over there. So you are confident that the people caring for them, whether that's the care workers, whether that's the doctors, the nurses are decent and they're not kind of cowboys. When you hear an idea like that, and I appreciate it's not very fleshed out, it's more of a problem and solution. Why do you think it's a good idea and why do you think it's a bad idea? Can I, can I clarify the idea? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so back in the country where the older person lives, yes. are you in- including like physical services as well? So is that, is that the, the idea would be that there would be physical services involved, care, nurses and doctors and the likes? Exactly. And maybe you'd have some regular cadence of checkups, say like a monthly primary care checkup. I think it's an excellent idea. <laughs> uh, so I think it's a great idea. I think that the, the thesis of um, I live far from my loved one, wherever they live, by the way, and, uh, and particularly if they live in countries where the healthcare system is, is, is not good enough uh, to provide me reassurance, that we know that feeling of guilt and, and worry is, is very, very present. And, and the informal caregivers, as we call them, it's, it's a pervasive uh, issue across countries. And myself, you know, we explore that at length and I've, I've heard and, and been uh, in, in situations um, where families struggle incredibly. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really hard. It can be really heavy and it can be emotionally draining. It can really... Um, yeah, hamper your career, you know, damage your your family relationships. It, it can be really, really hard. So the 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 trigger um, and the pull is is I recognize it fully. Great idea. I could totally imagine people would be willing to pay for that in the UK for their parents uh, back in the country. Um, I would just call into question two things: um, the economics and the uh, I say the logistics on site. Um, so let's start with the logistics. So we, if you have nurses and a check, you know, every month and so on, you need to, you know, find these people. And if there's not enough concentration, then you need to call upon the help of, you know, third party providers, private providers and so on. It becomes complex. And so the quality of the service is often, you know, limited and you need physical presence in that country to make sure the quality is good you need volume to make sure that you know they look at you and they're happy to work with you so you probably need to start with cities um and with one city and then another one and how do you ensure that you know you have enough people in uk with parents in that city so i really wonder in terms of operations whether there's not a, a bottleneck there but that could waived it could be waived or you could simplify it to the extent of you know a telemedicine call a few sensors and maybe uh, you know, kind of an informal model like Papa in the US where you have caregivers going to see these these patients. And there's a second one, how much does it cost? I mean, uh, and it's always the same in, in countries where healthcare is, uh, has not stepped up. Um, often families work, living remotely uh, struggle to pay the full cost of healthcare. And so it becomes only a premium system um, where only the, the wealthiest can actually pay. Because even in you know, in countries um, uh, where where there's not much healthcare delivery, paying for private healthcare often is quite a premium service. It's quite expensive. So I would really would love to look the at the business plan and say, can I pay me as you know a second generation immigrant in the UK to to pay for my mother who or my grandmother who lives in a, in in that country and and am I ready to pay a monthly fee there? Um, because it could be could be substantial. I don't know. That's my hypothesis. That's really interesting. Max, if you had to condense down the smart things you've done when 
building and scaling Birdie, if someone came to you and they were going to start a very similar company and you had to, you know, you were giving them a really honest like talk over dinner or at the pub or something. And you were like, look, these are the ways you're going to, <laughs> you're going to fuck up. And this is what you should do instead. What kind of tips would you be giving them? What would you be saying? Like, this is what I did that's worked well. I think there's three things really. Um, we stick to the vision and that's still there. And we've we've basically pivoted two or three times, as I said, and we, we failed so many times in the things we tried. But that vision stayed there and it was kind of a North Star. It was kind of a goalpost. It was, and and it, it, we stick together and our investors stick with us because we were saying, well, you know, we're going to approach it from different angles and we're going to try. And if it doesn't work, we're going to start again. But that's the plan, right? And the plan is to really fundamentally transform the way we age and to use technology to empower uh, better aging. I think the the second one is, um, if anything is about the people, and and I know it's cheesy. And, and so wait, that, wait, Max, but, can I can I interrupt there on the people point because I always believe that with these values, they only mean something if you if you talk about what you'd sacrifice to to achieve them. So when you say that people are really important, does that mean you're saying you know go pay fifty percent above market rate? Does that mean go spend triple the time trying to find and hire people? Does that mean you know, if someone wants to leave, give them whatever they want to keep them. Like, what's the sacrifice you make to to achieve that? I mean, all of that. Um, so, <laughs> no, but you're right. I think number one, you of course you need to pay above market, and um, and that's that's a sacrifice. Believe me. So you got to pay well. I mean, and and uh, we we try, we benchmark ourselves continuously, and our promise is we're going to be always above average, and we are. And an employee can challenge us and say, well, I disagree, and and then we we basically discuss the benchmarks, but we we. The principle is we always pay above average and, and we try to be largely above average uh, because that's how you get the best talent. I mean, there's the, the, the equation otherwise doesn't work. Second, you're right. I mean, and then you come with a, a wider range of benefits which make it attractive to work in your company. You need to make sure that people are satisfied and happy. And so there's ways of working, there's governance, there's values in the company that we can discuss, but these are important things as well. And uh, and the mission, uh, which for us is really important and people, are, I think, are attached to that. The sourcing, you absolutely right, requires an incredible amount of effort and you need to look at sourcing as, as a growth engine. We are dedicating a lot of time and effort to find uh, the best people and to convince them to come uh, work at Birdie. And, uh, and, and I'm not saying we have the best in the world, but I'm saying that we are spending an incredible amount of efforts to get there. Um, and, I, and I can talk about the tactics, but we have to reinvent ourselves continuously to make sure that we can speak to the best and try to convince them to come over and work with us. Sorry, I interrupted you. So you're talking about having like an overarching vision and presumably that means not getting distracted. Like that's the downside. Like you can't boil the ocean. You need to have some sort of overall trajectory. Uh, the second point was around hiring and I guess the, and, and having the best people. The sacrifice was maybe pay and maybe being a bit more selective. And then you had a, I think you had a third point that I interrupted. I think, I mean, it's, it's again, very, uh, it's very cheesy. I'm so sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> The, the resilience and optimism is important. Um, it's by essence the hardest thing I've ever done in my life because you are you're facing a mountain because there's no uh, guidance or direction, right? You are in the unknown territory and it's an adventure and it's a very exciting adventure, but you need to believe every day in this adventure. And whenever there is a, 
an issue, uh, and there's a lot, and there's a lot of uh, hurdles. You you have to have the resilience to carry on. Um, but it's worth it's worth the journey. But and and I know it's cheesy. Everybody says resi- resilience is a single determinant, you know. And we've heard that again recently uh, uh, from a, a, a few top leaders. But it's true. It's determination prevails and trumps any sort of strategy. If I could color in that resilience piece, your basically your alternative to this right now. And, and let me just speculate, feel free to correct me, but you know, you were at McKinsey, like theoretically, some of your peers have gone on to become McKinsey partners or other similarly high profile jobs uh, or high earning jobs. And they'll be on a lot of money and they've got a guaranteed paycheck and it'll be continue to rise. And you're taking this huge risk, right? And it could all not work out. And you're in five, 10 years, you've had that so much opportunity cost loss. So like, I think that's where the resilience comes in, right? Like you really have to believe in what you're doing because you had a very comfortable alternative. Yeah, um, I had a conversation with my partner actually two days ago, uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and we were talking about that. I'm a firm believer that if you're not happy where you are, you have to change, but you cannot whine and complain too often and, and too long, um, particularly in the privileged situation where I am, where I had you know good education and, and optionality. Um, you know, when I look at care workers, typically, and I know many of them, uh, it's a different ballgame because, because many of them don't have any choice. I have the luxury of choice. And so I don't tolerate myself to complain uh, if I'm not happy. Uh, so I'm very happy in what I do. And I agree with you. The opportunity cost is huge, but I believe the reward is, is extraordinary. The, the mere satisfaction of building something with value to society for me is, is incredibly rewarding. Serving a wider mission for me is something that energizes me incred- incredibly. Um, and we talked about it at the beginning of, of this podcast, but I, I do believe firmly, and that might be very uh, tainted in terms of, you know, maybe, you know, values and, and cultural background, that with the kind of background I had where I could study and I could work in good places and so on, I absolutely have an uh, obligation to at least try to contribute to the wider societal benefit, right? And, and if it's all about uh, me and 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 my money. I, I, I think that I'm breaking and breaching the, the social contract. Um, of course, you know I'm building a startup, and of course there might be a you know financial upside and so on. I mean, as you said, the risk is incredibly high. So uh, you, you, to to anyone willing to start a company, do not do that for the money because there's very little money, uh, and and there's only a very very few happy uh, winners. Um, but this idea of social contract, this idea of of for me. Um, setting a goal, a societal mission, and trying to work towards that is 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 for me really deeply ingrained in, in in my values. And beyond that, also trying to build a company where we do our best to uh, treat people well and to have the right values in the company, to operate with excellence, but also with integrity, and to hopefully convey these kind of behaviors towards you know the 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 younger employees who've just started it's their first job and in turn they're going to go to another company and they will call out when they see behaviors which are for them not acceptable for me that that is incredibly rewarding as well so so for these very reasons i'm i'm super happy in what i do and i agree the opportunity cost is higher but if i'm not happy i should i should i should leave and i'm very happy for now the last question i wanted to ask you was have there been any books resources anything that's been useful for you or helpful for you um along the journey 
plenty. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to spare you all the business books on uh, scaling startups because there's plenty and everybody knows them. Uh, but there's a few which, which have been very, very helpful. If we go a little bit more uh, niche, I mean, the, the latest book of Peter Atia, obviously, on Outlive for me is, is excellent as kind of the Bible for, uh, you know, prevention and longevity, um, which I find fascinating in terms of depth and uh, and concrete uh, tips. So I highly recommend that for any geek who would like to, to live longer or at least, you know, feel healthier. Then the, the, on, on the, I'd say, the more uh, exotic examples, there's one book from uh, uh, Professor Matukato called Mission Economy, which I really like. She basically says that we sh- should organize our economy towards a single um, societal objective. And she, she calls upon the example of the, uh, the mission to the moon, uh, where basically the US government and Kennedy said, we're going to go to the moon and then they rally up the NASA, but then they were thousands and thousands of private companies, you know, working towards that effort. And she she basically says it's time to set again a societal goal, whether that's climate change or healthcare, have the government not just regulating, but being, you know, at, at the forefront of that, of that initiative and then rallying up the economy. And I think it's true that um, in liberal societies and, and, you know, the UK or the US or others, um, it's great to let the system manage by itself, but sometimes we lose sight of what matters. And, and so I, I'm often uh, frustrated to see the amount of capital and, and intellectual uh, resources uh, deployed in things that are probably less important than you know healthcare, education, or, or climate change. So that's an, another one. Um, yeah, and there's, there's a few others. I, I War and Peace from Tolstoy for me is like an incredible example of cause and and where I think the existential uh, essence of living is in the the feeling of belonging and 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 working for a greater good and and i think that's one of the sources of happiness but i have another list and i'm going to stop here i hope you enjoyed the podcast you can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk and if you've been enjoying the podcast then please consider leaving a review and telling a friend about it maybe you send them an episode you think they'll like All right. See you next time. Thanks for listening.